Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Let's begin with a word of prayer. O oh Lord, we humble ourselves before you and before your word. And God, we ask for your help now to, Lord, not just hear the words, not just even understand them, Lord, but Lord, help us to apply these words and these things to our life. Lord, we thank you for the Spirit, and we seek his help now in Jesus' name, amen. I like to watch old reruns of a show called The Dog Whisperer. Have you ever seen that show? show features a, a man by the name of Caesar Milan who has a unique ability to step into a home with an out-of-control dog and within minutes rehabilitate the dog to a calm, submissive state. It's pretty incredible to watch. Usually when Caesar steps into one of these homes, he'll encounter a dog whose mindset is not in submission to its owner's but instead, the dog thinks he's the leader of the pack. You can watch as the dog will fixate on whatever pleases him, even if it's something that harms his master or harms the home that he's living in. For example, the dog's mindset might be to attack other dogs. You can see his mindset is not looking to his owner to see how are we going to interact with this dog. No, he's fixated on his own mindset. He's going to kill that other dog if, he, if it wasn't for this leash around my neck. But Caesar will begin to correct the dog with a poke in the side. In fact, I've tried this, but I don't seem to have the same touch. You know, he just, you know, kind of gives the dog a little jab in the side and snaps it out of it, its mindset, and suddenly the dog will look up to him, and he's trying to communicate to the dog, hey, I'm the leader of the pack now. And I say, we're not going to attack that other dog, right? He's, he's um, disrupting the dog's natural mindset and uh, commanding the attention of the dog and his mindset. So it's amazing to watch as a dog's mindset is transformed under Caesar's handling. And by the time he's done, the dog's mindset is no longer fixated on what he wants, but is looking to Caesar for direction. With Caesar's guidance, the dog's mindset begins to trust and follow his owner. The dog goes from being out of control, bent upon destruction and death. A lot of these dogs are like one step away from being put down. The dog goes from that to a calm, submissive, well-adjusted state. Well, as a, as a Christian, I see this illustration uh, having some parallels in, in the spiritual realm. It ha- you know, illustrates some spiritual truth for us this morning. When a person comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, that person is no longer fixated on the realm of the flesh and what the sinful nature wants. No, that person has a new master now and his or her gaze is now redirected up to the Lord. What does my new master want? Let me find that out and, and let me follow him. What is the mindset of my master? But like most illustrations, this illustration has a a limitation to it because when a person comes to Christ, the person doesn't just just get a new master, someone new to follow. 
No, when a person comes to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes within them, which is nothing short of the very mind of Christ in us. So we don't just have a a new mindset to follow. We have a new mindset in us. That leads me to really my big idea for the morning, and, and that is this, that the Holy Spirit brings freedom to actually begin to walk in righteousness. The Holy Spirit brings freedom through this new mindset, this new mind of Christ, to actually begin to walk in righteousness. As I said last week, this is the normal Christian life. This is kind of like part two of that thought. Now, let's see if I can get you back into the flow of thought here in Romans chapter eight. We talked last week about the foundation of things in verses one through four. The foundation of the Christian life is no condemnation. Really, the foundation of any transformation you want to see in your life, any spiritual transformation you want to see in your life begins with justification. It begins with God declaring over you, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we gain that by faith alone. That is the foundation. It's not just... uh, I mean, this is good news for us, right? I mean, this is, the, the, this is our justification and, and we need to know this and we need to hear about it on the day that we are saved, right? We need to learn about that. But the beautiful thing about Romans chapter eight is Paul is not just applying justification to the moment of salvation, but he is applying this now to a Christian who is struggling with his sin. Christian, you need to know the truth that there is therefore no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus as you struggle with sin, right? That's exactly when you need to be reminded of it. That's exactly when you need to hear it. And once we have that foundation of no condemnation in Christ, then the evidence comes in verse two. The evidence of our justification comes in verse two of this chapter where Paul says, for the the law or power of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law or power of sin and death. Right, so we have no condemnation, justification. Verse two, we have freedom by the spirit. That's our sanctification. And then this pattern repeats itself in verses three and four. Again, in verse three, we find the foundation of no condemnation as Paul says that God has done what not even his law could have done, right? His law was weakened by our flesh. So God did something. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering for us in order that God might condemn sin in the flesh, in Christ, so that we wouldn't have to be. That's the foundation again, verse three, of justification. Then verse four, we see Paul transitioning to sanctification. We we see the result, Paul says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Talked at length last week about what does this mean, this righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in us? Well, I think this points to both our, our justification and our sanctification. God fulfills the righteous requirements of the law in every sense of the word in and through Jesus Christ and through the Spirit, right? We, we rely solely upon God in Christ to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law for us. Jesus 
fulfilled the righteous requirement perfectly in his lifetime, and Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of death. The law requires death for sin, right? And Jesus, when he died on the cross, he wasn't, he, there was no requirement for his death, but there is a requirement hanging over our heads because of the law that's requiring death. So Jesus fulfilled that requirement of the law by dying on the cross for our sins. As the old hymn says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Christian, as you're struggling with sin, you need to know that the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled. Jesus paid it all, right? That's the good news. That's the foundation. But I think this also means here that Paul is sort of transitioning in his thinking to talking about sanctification, and he, he is indicating here that not only is, are those things fulfilled in Christ, but God did all this in order that the righteous requirements of the law might actually begin to be fulfilled in us as we walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Another requirement of the law is love. Right? You can sum up the righteous requirements, all the commandments of God in the law can be summed up with love, right? Love for God, love for your neighbor. And apart from the Spirit of God within us, we are not able to love God the way that we should. We are not able to even love our neighbors the way that we should. But Jesus came and died on the cross, gave us no condemnation so that God could begin in the Spirit to fulfill the requirement of the law that we might walk in love and the power of the Spirit and not according to the flesh. So the, really the overall aim here, just to kind of give you a big picture, it's a quote from Christopher Ashe, the overall aim of Romans 8 must be to promote a proper cross-based, spirit-given assurance for the believer who struggles with sin, pointing back to Romans chapter 7, 14 through 25. And with suffering, and that's the rest of Romans chapter 8, 8, 17 through 39. As we struggle with sin, we need to know the assurance of no condemnation and the spirit at work within us. And as we suffer with various trials and temptations, we need to know there is no separation for us in Christ Jesus. And that's kind of where we've been and that's where we're headed the foundation being laid now, we're moving on this morning to discuss further here this freedom to actually walk according to the Spirit, to actually fulfill the requirements of the law, to walk in love, to walk in righteousness. Not perfectly. But you know, when, we, when, when Adam fell in the garden into sin, we, we as a human race fell into bondage to that sin. Right? We weren't able to please God in any way. But with our, our justification and with the coming of the spirit of life into our hearts, we are now free to begin actually obeying God's commands, actually loving him, and actually doing the things that he wants us to do. Paul wrote so memorably in Galatians 5.25, if we live by the spirit, let us also walk by the spirit. If the spirit brings us to new life, then let us walk by him in an ongoing fashion. Well, these verses here in Romans 8, 5 through 13, really organize quite neatly into three points. 
And I, I wanted to let you know that I did borrow this outline from one of my professors in seminary. His name's Tony Morita. I've only altered it slightly here, so I'm giving him a little hat tip this morning. And these are the three points that we're going to be going through here. Uh, first, the contrast of flesh and spirit, verses 5 and 6. Secondly, the confirmation of the Spirit, verses 7 through 11. And finally, the call to those of the Spirit. And we're just going to touch on that for a, a few moments in verses 12 through 13. So first, the contrast of flesh and Spirit. Paul speaks here in this section of Scripture of two realms of power. First, there is the flesh. And when Paul, you need to understand, when Paul speaks of flesh in these verses, he's not speaking of what you might immediately think about when you hear someone talk about flesh, right? He's not talking about just these muscles and bones and ligaments and sinews and organs of of this body. He's not merely talking about that. When Paul speaks of the, the flesh, he's referring here to our sinful nature that often expresses itself through this body. I like the way James Boyce put it. He said that the flesh here means to be a merely sinful man. Right? That's someone that's limited to that horizontal realm. You know, even though God in heaven made them, this flesh and this earth and this world and its system is all that they're concerned about. But it's more than that even because I think it reflects the whole world system. It, it points to uh, not just this body, but it's also the, the spiritual power behind that, the devil and his henchmen. Right? It's all represented there in this word flesh, sinful nature and that, everything that goes along with that. And the same could be said of the spirit. Paul's not talking here about the human spirit or just any old spirit or even the force or just some kind of power out in the universe. Right? Paul is talking about the third personal distinct member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. And so we're not talking here about two different parts of a person, his body versus his soul. See, I I, want to make sure that you don't somehow walk away this morning with this idea that the flesh is everything that's physical, the body is bad, and meanwhile the spirit is good. Because that kind of a mindset tends to lead to creating people acting like monks, right? They're, they say, oh, well, the physical world is evil. If, the, if everything that's of the flesh and of the world is evil, then really my goal as a Christian should be just to escape it and hide away somewhere out in a, a walled-off place, and I just all I do is I spend time doing spiritual things. Thank God Jesus didn't do that. No, he put on flesh, and at Christmas time, he, he came down and he dwelt among us, and he was... He was he walked a mile in our shoes and he was in the world, but not of it, right? That's not what Jesus did. It's not what the apostles did. It's not what you're called to do. That's not what Paul's talking about here. What Paul talks about is flesh and spirit, not pitting different parts of your body against each other, but he's talking about two different realms of power, the, the flesh and its world system and, and the spirit and everything that is aligned with, with our God and and. And his priorities. 
And so the question is, do you walk according to the power of the flesh to do what the sinful nature desires, which is reflected in the values of this world and rebellion against God? Or do you walk according to the power of the Spirit and what he values and desires? I'm asking you. Do you walk according to the flesh or do you walk according to the Spirit? I'm not talking about perfectly. But what is the trajectory of your life? Who captains your soul? Because what Paul is describing here is the normal Christian life, Christian. This is the normal Christian life. There, is the, there are those who walk according to the flesh and that power system, or there are those who walk according to the Spirit. Paul doesn't give a third category here. A generation ago, it was, it was popular to talk about this third category of, of being a carnal Christian. Let me tell you, if you, if you would describe yourself as a carnal Christian, that, that word carnal just means fleshly Christian, then let me tell you, that should be a warning sign to you because if your profession isn't matching your life, then it doesn't matter if you profess Christ, if you, if you are actually walking and setting your mind on the things of the flesh. Right? And once again, I, I'm not talking about perfectly here. But I'm talking about it should be a life-changing event for the Spirit of God to come into your life. So we're talking about two realms of power here. And Paul's also talking very clearly about two mindsets. Look at verse 5. Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. What does Paul mean here about setting your mind on something? Well, it's obviously going to first involve what you actually spend your time thinking about, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, we, we have to start there. And, and I think for those who have the Spirit within them, there, there should be a hunger for the Word of God. Reading it, listening to it, memorizing it, and especially meditating upon it. And by that I mean thinking about it, mulling it over. It is through the Word of God that, and by the power of the Spirit of God that our minds are renewed. Right? That's the, that's the way it happens. So it begins with what you actually think about on a day-to-day basis. But it's more than that because what you think about and believe ends up directing your will. It ends up directing your actions, doesn't it? So Paul's just describing the normal Christian life here. Those who have the mind of Christ within them will be thinking about, will have their minds set not just down here, but they'll be thinking of the Lord and it's going to be impacting what they actually do on a day-to-day basis. I was thinking about this in terms of, of uh, illustration and I, I thought of a sailboat. You, know, you put a sailboat in the water and you, you run the sails up. That sailboat is, is going to catch the winds and it's going to go somewhere. But did you know that a, a, an experienced captain of a, of, a, of a sailing vessel can, it doesn't matter what direction the wind is blowing, he can actually direct those sails in such a way that he can go any way he wants. Right? There's a, 
there's a captain with a mindset on that vessel directing which way that, that boat shall go. And two boats with the same wind can go in completely opposite directions. <laughs> and I think the same thing is, is true of a person, right? You need to ask yourself, what, who's captaining your vessel? Is it the flesh or is it, is it the spirit of the living God? Because depending on who's captaining your vessel will, will drastically alter your trajectory, right? They, they are opposite directions that those captains will take you. Listen, it's not natural to your fleshly mind to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. It's not natural. It's not natural to set your mind on a man who lived 2,000 years ago to, to know him and to want to love him and to worship him. That is not natural to the, to the human flesh. It's not natural to set your mind on a Roman cross, object of torture and death. It's not natural to set your mind on heavenly things and to view earthly things in, in light of that. And it's definitely not natural to set your mind on what God wants you to do ahead of what you naturally in your own flesh want to do. That is not natural. And again, I'm not saying that Christians do this flawlessly. I have struggled with my own flesh even this week as I'm sure you have. Even Peter in Matthew chapter 16 is found to be out of step with the Spirit. I don't know if you remember this story from the Gospels, but Peter sort of reaches a, a mountaintop where he, you know, Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And man, you know, Peter, always the first to speak up, he says, oh, I know, you're, you're the Christ. <laughs> and, and Jesus looks at him and, and praises him for that and, and even gives him a new name, calls him the rock. But then just a short time later, Jesus begins to share with his disciples about the necessity of him going to the cross. And in that moment, Peter was out of step with the Spirit of God because Peter heard that and in his flesh, it didn't make sense. Jesus, what are you talking about going to the cross? <laughs> he begins to, to, to rebuke Jesus. And, and I'm sure in that moment to Peter, he felt like he had some worldly wisdom to share with Jesus, right? He felt like he, 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 felt like he knew what was going on and he, maybe he even thought it was compassionate. Jesus, this isn't gonna get you a following, Right? You don't want to go to a cross. <laughs> but it was obviously out of step with the Spirit of God. And do you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Right? So even Peter struggled from time to time to be in step with the Spirit of God. And you, you will too. But still, there, there needs to be a new mindset, a new captain of your vessel, as I've said. And you should be able to discern this in your life. I wish I had time to just publicly read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 out loud. Just to kind of like allow scriptures to comment on this concept. I, I think what Paul kind of talks about a little bit here in these few verses, he just sort of explodes in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. 
All right, I'm, I'm going to flip over there real quick and just give you a couple highlights. But if you get some time this afternoon and you want to set your mind on the things of the Spirit, reread these chapters and, and think about it in relationship to what we're talking about here. I think the, the perfect place to start is the cross. And that's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Right? That there's probably the first indication that, you, that the Spirit of God is within you, that the, the, that the cross becomes significant in your life. Not as a, a symbol, but as the place where your Savior died for your sins. It, 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 apart from the Spirit of God, it seems like foolishness to be fixated on that, right? But through faith and by the power of the Spirit, that becomes your hope. It becomes your hope. And you see it as the wisdom and the power and the beauty and the compassion of God for you. And I love how in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says in, in verse 9, he says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Right? There, are, there are heavenly realities, spiritual truths that no earthly man could even imagine. By love, a lot of times we stop there when we quote this verse, but if you go on to the next verse, he says, But these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And then he goes on in verses 11 and 12 here, and he, he, he uses an illustration. He says, for who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? You know, we, this is just a reality of, of human existence. You know, you're talking to people, and they may say things to you, but you don't know what they're really thinking. Right? The only person who knows what they're truly thinking is them, in their spirit. Who knows what even a man thinks except for the spirit of a man within him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the f- things freely given us by God. Think about this. Down in verse 16, Paul says, but we have the mind of Christ. Right? That spirit of God that contains his thoughts, his will, is with us. So we have two mindsets Two different mindsets here. And then verse 6, we also see two results. Paul says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. To have your mind and will fixated on everything except the God who made you is death. Right? Paul is referring here not primarily, I think, to just physical death, even though that is a natural outcome of the mind set on the flesh. But he's referring primarily here to spiritual death spiritual death. The mindset 
here that he's talking about is concerned only with the horizontal, with the earthly, with the fleshly. And that means death now. And if you don't repent and turn from your sins, it means death forever and ever in hell. It's the natural outcome of a life lived set on death. But, Paul says, to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. To have your mind or will fixed upon the realm of the spirit is life and peace. Your life is flooded with these things. You are in relationship again with the God who made you and you are at peace with him and you experience life and peace right now. But even more so, you have the hope of life and peace for all eternity, eternal life, everlasting peace, shalom with him. And so the contrast of the flesh and the spirit couldn't be any starker. We have two realms, two mindsets, two results. That leads us to this next section here, the confirmation of the spirit, verses 7 through 11. In verse 7, Paul describes the attitude of the fleshly mindset. Look at verse 7. It says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Hostility. The attitude of the fleshly mind is hostility towards God. You know, sometimes people seem to be merely thoughtless towards God or maybe disinterested, disbelieving, or ignorant but really hostile? Remember, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So to do anything without glorifying God is hostility to God. And Romans 14.23 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. So whatever is done without faith in God is hostile to God. You need to understand this. The greatest commandment is to love God with all that is within you, with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so to do anything without love for God is really hostility toward God. We don't recognize this sometimes. But Paul makes it so plain here. He says that to set the mind on the flesh is death, and for the mind that is set on the flesh is It is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. The evidence of this is disobedience and rebellion. If you want to see this hostility, it's often hidden behind a veneer in people's lives, in our own lives. If we think back before we were in Christ, especially. If you want to see this veneer, then start talking with people about God's commands you're going to see the hostility come out. Are you telling, you know, this isn't what I said, but this is what God said. You're going to see that hostility come to the surface because it's there, but it's hidden behind a veneer. You know, I, I think about many times how, you know, really nice, polite people you might work with in your office or in your neighborhood or whatever, if you meet them on the road in the privacy of their own vehicle, they get cut off. That, you know, that veneer is the car, right? Nobody knows who I am. Who knows what they act like behind that wheel, right? I see the same thing on the internet. If you ever like scroll down to the comment section of a news article or a YouTube video or something, I mean, man, people that you probably would think were nice, polite people, man, when they, 
when they're anonymous on the internet, they, the hostility comes out. I think the same thing is true to the fleshly mind that wants nothing to do with God, even if it's just ignoring God. Right? Don't tell me what to do. But Paul takes this even a step further here. He says, not only does a person not submit to God's law when he's in the flesh, Paul says he can't even do it. Cannot, he's not even able. You cannot please God in the flesh, Paul says. Paul, do you mean that feeding the poor in the flesh doesn't please God? Do you mean that building hospitals in the flesh does not please God? Do you mean that working to provide for your kids in the flesh does not please God? Yes, I think that's exactly what he means. That's not to say that those sorts of good deeds are devoid of any sort of good in every sense. And in fact, we wouldn't want people to behave differently. But what we're talking about is pleasing God. And as we've already said, in order to please God, it must be done to the glory of God and with faith towards God and with a heart full of love for God. God is worthy of our, all of our love, all of the glory. And even a lot of these good deeds fall woefully short of that. I think this shows not only how depraved we are in the flesh, but I believe it speaks to the depth of our depravity. Those who are in the flesh cannot literally, in the Greek here, it's not able to please God. It's not possible. It's just like, just like it's not possible for a corpse to stand up and to begin dancing to a catchy tune. Right? It is not possible for someone who is walking in the flesh to please God. And, and really, I think that this impossibility that Paul's talking about here should actually encourage those of us who are in Christ because if you see in your life signs of spiritual life, that should be encouraging and not discouraging. Paul, uh, uh, he transitions directly in this, in, in this direction here, beginning in verse 9. He begins to address the Roman Christians more personally here. Look at verse 9. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Paul's question here asking, um, he says here, uh, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. I don't think he's asking that question here to, to stir up doubts. But to the contrary, uh, he starts and outright tells them, hey, you are not in the flesh, but you, Christian, are in the Spirit. But as a, a wise and, and good shepherd, Paul does qualify what he says here with a gut-checking question, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. I think it's designed to make you check yourself. But for the true Christian, the answer should not be long in coming. Of course I have the Spirit, for it's self-evident that the Spirit of God has flooded my life and has begun to sanctify me in inexplicable ways. I think Paul expected that kind of encouraging self-check to happen when he said this. 
Now, there's no such thing as, as being a Christian who does not yet have the Holy Spirit. Do you see that here in these verses? Verse 9, the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. By the way, don't be thrown by these various ways Paul refers to the Spirit. He calls him the Spirit, the Spirit of life, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. He says Christ is in you. Got to remember the Trinity, right? That there are three distinct persons of the Trinity and yet there is one God. So Paul is, is not trying to blur the, the distinctiveness here by calling it the Spirit of Christ, calling the Spirit the Spirit of Christ, or by saying it's Christ who is in you and by doing that referring to the Spirit. I think what Paul is emphasizing here is how much we belong to him. And he's emphasizing the oneness of the Godhead. Look at verse 10. Paul says here, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If Christ is in you, that is through the Holy Spirit, remembering that God is one, even though your physical body is death in that it still lusts after the things of the flesh and one day your physical body is going to get sick or hurt or or literally die, still the the spirit is life because of righteousness. In, In other words, because we have been declared righteous by God, the resulting work of the Holy Spirit within us is anything but death. He is even now the very presence of eternal life. There is a new power, a new principle at work within me, even as everything else falls apart. (laughs) Is your physical body falling apart right now? Be encouraged by the presence of life in you through the Holy Spirit. Verse 11. Paul says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit who is now in you, Christian, is the exact same spirit that indwelled Jesus Christ as he walked on this earth 2,000 years ago. He is the exact same spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And he has already begun that work of giving you life and he will surely Bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus when he raises you also from the dead. That is our hope. And so I see in these these verses here just the confirmation of the Spirit, a belonging to Christ, giving us life now and the hope of eternal life to come. And that brings us at last here to these last two verses, verses 12 through 13. And I don't have time left to do anything but simply to read them to you. As, I, as I've said here, Paul has all throughout this section of scripture been describing the way it is. Hey, this is the normal Christian life. And it isn't until he gets here to verses 12 and 13 that he begins to draw some natural applications and making some, some commandments here. He says, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now I'm going to delay talking about that. I have a book sitting on my desk right now that 
where a, a Puritan wrote an entire book this thick on that one verse right there. And I'm hoping to, I probably won't get all the way through the book, but I'm hoping to read it a little bit between now and then. There's a lot to talk about there. What does it mean to mortify the flesh, to put to death the deeds of the body? We're going to talk about that. Um, and actually, we're going to get hopefully get through that and uh, talking about the spirit of adoption next time we're in Romans together. But for now, I, wa- I don't want to leave you without talking about a little bit of so what, a little bit of application here, pulling things to a close. I want to point you back to that Christopher Ash uh, quote that I gave you near the beginning where, where he said that one of the points of, of, the, of Romans chapter 8 is our assurance. And it's clear that our assurance should be first cross-based, based upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and then spirit-given. And so I just have a, a couple of questions here to cause you to meditate, hopefully, this week on this, this text a little bit further. In, in the first place, in fact, I would encourage you, if you're eating lunch with someone this afternoon, maybe have the, you know, pull out these questions and have a discussion about these things. In what ways do you draw assurance from the work of Christ on your behalf? And and I don't just mean, have you done that in the past? I mean, how do you, in an ongoing way, do that? Came across a, a quote, really just this morning, from Paul David Tripp, and he said this, and I really resonated with this. He said, you're constantly preaching to yourself some kind of gospel. We talk to ourselves more than we talk to anyone else. And you're, you're constantly preaching something to yourself, some kind of good news to keep you going through the day, right? And you preach to yourself, Paul Tripp says, an anti-gospel, of, you either preach to yourself an anti-gospel of your own righteousness, power, and wisdom, or you preach to yourself the true gospel of deep spiritual need and sufficient grace in Christ. You preach to yourself an anti-gospel of aloneness and inability. Or you preach to yourself the true gospel of the presence, provisions, and power of an ever-present Christ. In what way do you draw assurance from the work of Christ on your behalf? Secondly, what evidence do you see in your life of a mindset on the Spirit? I'd encourage you just to write it down. Think about it. Do, it. do that gut check that Paul does here in Romans chapter 8. If the Spirit of God is in you. And you might even consider asking others, what evidence do you see what evidence do you see of the Spirit of God in me? Someone you trust. Thirdly, I'll just leave you with this question. Do you belong to Christ by faith? Do you belong to him? Everything we've been talking about this morning is predicated on you turning from the flesh, turning from trusting in yourself, and instead Trusting in Christ. There's an old illustration about what it means to trust. You think about 
sitting in a chair. <clears throat> you know, you can take a chair like this, and you can say, wow, this, this looks like a pretty solid chair. I mean, it's made of wood and everything, and you can point to the chair. You can even encourage others to sit in the chair. But you don't actually trust, show trust in the chair until you actually sit down in it and let it hold up your weight. And I guess the question that I have for you this morning is, have you ever done that? Have you ever surrendered your life? And instead of trusting in yourself, trusted in Christ for your salvation. If you do, you can know the foundation of everything we've been talking about here, no condemnation. And you can have the spirit of freedom come into your life and begin to do all these wonderful things that we've talked about. Why not repent of your sins and trust in him today? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, the close of our service, and Lord, we just want to thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for the Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would just reveal our hearts, Lord, this week as we consider these things. God, I pray that you would encourage Christians as they see the evidence of your Spirit in them. And Lord, I pray that you would draw people who have never trusted in you to yourself this week. Oh Lord, I, I pray that you would apply your word to people's lives in ways that I can't even imagine. Give us new life again, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.